Okay, here we go. Good morning, ANC. I'm so glad to finally be back in Austin and to be able to share with you this morning. And I should confess this, I'm so nervous. Yes, I'm terrifying. I'm terrifying. But anyways, thank you for your clapping. <laughs> for those who do not know who I am, my name is Cesar Soto. I, I pastor Amor Original, the Spanish-speaking congregation being planted here under the care of Austin New Church and the United Methodist Church uh, Capital District. Uh, let me start by giving you a very brief update about what's going on with Amor Original. Almost exactly a year ago today, we did our first live stream service on Facebook Live, and we did that from the green room back there. So amazing time a year ago. In the beginning, tons of people from all over Latin America started to gather around the live stream every, every Sunday morning. But as soon as we declare ourselves to be a fully inclusive, fully affirming church, the numbers dropped super fast. The good thing was that after that, a few dozen people stayed, which is when the real advent adventure began. People began to share about their very traumatic experiences with the church and in life in general, and a very diverse and beautiful community emerged. That's our small story. Amor Original grew online during the pandemic, and today, we have people from almost every single Spanish-speaking country in the world. And now, yeah, and now that we are back here in Austin, it's finally time to set down roots in, in this land. So before the pandemic, here in Austin, we gathered a group of people willing to help us get started. So many things happened this year. We spent, as Jason said, almost 10 months of the last 12 months back in Chile, where we come from, waiting for the right U.S. documents to begin in earnest, and now it's time to reactivate that small pilot group here at ANC. So, if during this small, brief update, you feel like you would like to be a part of what we are building, please contact me. I'm leaving my email address here on the screen somewhere here, okay? And if you have some Hispanic friends, if you have some Hispanic friends, please let them know about this. They could be a blessing to Amor Original, and Amor Original could be a huge blessing for them too. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, okay, now let's talk about, about the gospel because that's, I'm here to do that, right? Okay, okay, that's, that, that's the deal. Okay. The lectionary suggests for this Sunday a very interesting story about faith and doubt. So let's jump into the gospel according to John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Uh, it says like this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, and here's a very small side note, the name Thomas means in Aramaic, means twin. And since John is writing for the Greek community, he's translating that name, and he said Didymus also, which is the Greek name for twin. Okay, I move on. 
So now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the, door, the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hand. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, uh, this is a very interesting passage of the scripture, especially for me. Uh, it's interesting because it talks about the tension between seeing and belief. Also, this passage, passage is very popular, I must say this, it's very popular among people who think real faith is blind. That's what they mean when they say things like, don't be a doubting Thomas, or you are like Thomas, all ye of little faith. Things like that. And sometimes the people who think this way are the same kind of people who celebrate fake headlines like, NASA proves the Bible is real, or found giant skeletons that fit with the description of Goliath. Things like that. You know things like that. They demand people believe without evidence, while at the same time, they demand evidence. And actually, they are eager for evidence. And you know why I know so much about this kind of people? I used to be that kind of people. So I'm probably, some of you shared the same background as me. And here's the paradox. As soon as you think you have uh, enough evidence to believe, faith. It's not longer faith. Am I saying evidence is useless? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying faith does not depend on evidence that demands a verdict. And if you have been around the Christian church for a while, you probably understood that reference. Good morning, Josh. Okay, faith, some of you will take that. Some of, okay, anyways. Faith isn't complicated as we tend to make it. Maybe this is one of the points of deconstructing our faith. Maybe what matters most is to remove all unnecessary statements of evidence and proof and just keep the gospel, the raw and scandalous gospel. And here are a couple of things I found interesting in these verses. The first one, the simple message the disciples carried was this. We have seen the Lord. And this is essentially the plural form of the first resurrection sermon that Mary Magdalene preached several days prior. She was the first to say, I have seen the Lord. And actually, Jason pointed to that last Sunday morning. So since Mary Magdalene said that, the binomial, or sorry, this couple of words that create tension, see, and believe, became a very important 
thing into the narrative. Actually, take your time, not now, later. Read the entire chapter, and you will see all the time this parallel thing between see and believe. And the second thing that I found very interesting was that Thomas ended up playing the role of a scapegoat. If you take the time to read the Gospels, all of them, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you paid special attention to the narrative around the resurrection, you will not find a single disciple, not one, a single disciple who believed without seeing. No one believed without seeing with their own eyes the resurrected Jesus. There is simply no written testimony that anyone believed in the resurrection of Jesus without first seeing physical evidence. So, if that is the case, how do we explain the words that John the Evangelist put in Jesus' mouth? Apparently, no one fits into the category of people that believe without seeing. Okay, and here's the thing. thing. Sometimes we forget simple details. Uh, I would like to provide a very small, simple example. For example, when someone had a terrible, terrible life, until all of a sudden things changed and they now find themselves deeply in love. This is an example that probably uh, resonated with some of you. I don't know. That person interprets the past, the way things used to be obviously heavily influenced by the current situation. They might say things like, everything had a purpose. Everything, even my darkest moments, lead me to this very moment of happiness. So that person is retelling the past using the lens of love. And believe me, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think, actually, I think that's awesome. Love has the power to change our perspective, not just of the present, but also of the past. And it's, it is powerful enough to heal deep wounds and reconfigure our projections to the future. So honestly, I think the author of this gospel is trying to do something similar, retelling the past, considering the current situation of the community. The Gospel of John took his final form, the one that we, we have in, in our Bibles, most likely towards the end of the first century, at least 60 years after the events that occurred. The apostles were dead. So were the eyewitnesses. And the church was now made up entirely of people who had to believe without seeing. Remember the beatitude that goes like this. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This was written for them. The believers that made up the church at the time that these gospels were written and compiled. A generation after Jesus lived and died. And these details about being blessed, even though we have not seen, this encouragement is for us as well. Believers without access to physical evidence. As I mentioned earlier, Thomas in Aramaic and Didymus in Greek means the same, twin. 
And here's another detail that probably we miss so frequently, not just in this passage, but in the entire lecture of the Bible. Even though the Bible contains several historical references, the Bible is, first of all, a theological book or a theological collections, collection of books. That means almost, almost every detail has a meaning. Another very small example to understand this. Today, we could write all kinds of stuff, and if we are not happy, we can just throw it away. And we can try to write something several times until we are already happy with the final script. We have the resources to do that. We have paper, pencils, electronic devices, etc. But in the first century, writers did not have that privilege. So they were very careful using and choosing the words names, numbers, and places. That means if the gospel brings to the table the meaning of the name, the writer did that when he offered the name in, in Greek, Didymus. So I think he's trying to tell something. The name or the translation of the name is not there just for fun. So I think it's fair to ask ourselves, what might have been John's purpose in mentioning a detail like this in this narrative? Did Thomas have a twin, maybe? Well, since I'm doing the teaching this morning, I, I should at least attempt to respond to that question. Okay, so here's what I think. Thomas was, in fact, a twin. And, of course, you know what a twin is. If you are a twin, your brother or your sister is basically, basically someone just like you. And please keep in mind the word basically because I'm not trying to do a class in genetic. So it's basically the same. That's all. So who is Thomas's twin? How is someone just like him? Who is someone just like him? And this is what I think. In this gospel, the twin, Thomas's twin, is the community of believers at the end of the first century. That was the twin that John had in mind, the audience of the gospel. And today, by extension, the twin, the twin is you. And the twin is me. Thomas is our mirror. We are basically the same. Doubt and faith colliding in the same heart. Do you know how that feels? I'm so sure you know what that feels. I'm sure you know. I am so sure how I feel dealing with this. And the thing that pushes us to believe is the same that pushed Thomas to believe. An encounter with the resurrected Jesus. The resurrected Jesus? Today? Yes, that's all we need. So someone may ask, say, is that possible? An encounter with the resurrected Jesus today? Sure it is. That encounter happens every time someone decides to leave the gospel. We, as a body of Christ, spreading good news, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, opening our homes to the immigrants, we are serving Christ and we are acting like Christ. 
People don't need to see a dead man rising from the dead today. Leave that for the walking dead. That's all. But people need to experience the reality of the gospel now. The reality of the presence of Jesus in us. The reality of the resurrection through us. When people see that, then they will be the echo of the first sermon ever preached after the resurrection. They will say, we have seen the Lord. And that would be nothing but 100% true. Peace be with you.